0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 17. We were going to be in verse uh, verse 16. It's a long passage here, so I'm not going to read through it all to start. We're going to read through it as we work through. This is an interesting passage. It's, it's really a, uh, Paul speaking the gospel to a place, which is Athens. We'll talk more about Athens they had never really heard the gospel. I mean, it wasn't a, a post-Christian or anything. It was just a, a city that had, had never heard the gospel as far as we know. They were not uh, familiar with the story of Jesus, familiar with Christianity, familiar with any of it. And so this text has been throughout really, you know, especially more modern times been church history, kind of a, a template, if you want to say that, to say how do you share the gospel to people or a culture, or a city that has no familiarity with the gospel. How did Paul do it? And as we'll see, he did it very carefully, very thoughtfully, but this ultimately is not just some kind of classroom lecture of like taking notes on how to do that, because this text also confronts us. As we read through this, I don't want you just to think about, you know, there may be some people in this room who um, are dabbling in Christianity and aren't quite there yet, And so, of course, I I hope that we have your ear this morning, and we're thankful you're here for those who are Christians and have been walking with Jesus for some time. This isn't just about, you know, those uh, out there on the outside of our faith. This is also to us. It's going to confront us this morning, as the gospel of Christ always confronts us. And there is some relevance. Our nation and our Western world is uh, rapidly post-Christian. As the years go by, it is just becoming more and more and more absent of Christianity and any kind of familiarity, it is not unlikely to meet someone who has never owned a Bible, never set foot in the church, and has only whatever knowledge of Jesus they have is from some, you know, movie or, you know, cultural references here or there, but no real knowledge. And this is becoming more the case in our own nation, and so a text like this becomes more relevant to us. And so we'll talk about many different things this morning. Ultimately, what we're going to see is this world needs a better story. Most of the sermons in Acts are given from, you know, Jewish Christian to Jews or or Gentiles who have become Jews, and they convert to Christianity, and there's kind of a shared worldview that is informed by Scripture. This is one of the, the, the exceptions in the book of Acts, right, where we are seeing people hear this for the very first time, Right? And, and um, uh, it's just fascinating how Paul approaches them. So I hope we can learn something this morning, gain some helpful information that can equip us as missionaries to live, but also this morning be confronted ourselves. I want to use an analogy here that I'm going to butcher. My father-in-law builds homes, and I'm going to attempt to use a building home analogy, which I know nothing about. But I think this kind of makes sense, and he can correct me if I use wrong words. Um, Imagine leaving for a moment that, and this is, this is Paul's method as they're going to see, it's going to help make sense as they're working through this, that right beside our house in Delaware, they're building two brand new homes. And they're like, you know, two feet from our house, but they're right there, okay? And uh, in front of these homes, there's just stacks of boards, right? Pieces of wood, just big pieces of board, just they're everywhere. And the builders all day long, they're cutting to, you know, size, and, they're, and they've laid the, the, the footer, right? The footer, is that what they laid? footing, foundation, and they're building on top of that this frame. There's a frame, right? The frame of the house. Okay, good. And so as they're doing that, they're grabbing boards, and they're putting them in place, and it looks like a house. Like, you see it, and it's like, this is obviously a house, right? This is a coherent structure. It makes sense. There's a front door. There's a garage. You know, we're all trying to figure it out as we see it being built, well, the gospel is the true framework by which we are to understand this world, in which we want to find hope and find meaning in this life. There are many boards, if you want to use that analogy, that's, that's in place in the gospel narrative that builds the structure up to make sense of us in this world as we find hope and salvation in Jesus and the work of Jesus Christ. But sometimes when we are reading newspapers or talking to our neighbors or working beside our co-workers... We as Christians can sometimes see a, what I want to call, a, a stray board of belief or of longing that resonates to us as Christians. Right, sometimes we see this in movies. We see this in film, right? Um, uh, Times that we see, you know, like injustice corrected in a movie, and you're like, "Yes, that should happen." That feels good because that reminds me of God's work in this world. And we, this happens sometimes. And if you, if if you know what I'm talking about, you can track with me. In theological terms, this is called general revelation. There are things that can be known. Psalm 19 points to this. That can be learned of God just from looking around, right? Um, we, we, we can learn a lot actually about God just by observing this world and the orderly nature of it and seeing people, you know, love someone so much that it costs them a very costly love to even someone to give their life from someone else. You know, we see those stories are like, wow, that's amazing. And all of humanity is like, Yeah, those stories are amazing. And we say, Yeah, it's amazing because that's the story of Jesus. And it's gripping your heart right now, right? And you need to find him. Right. And we're gonna work through that. Today, but in our post-Christian America and post-Christian rest, West, these stray boards of belief—it's almost like there was a house being built, but the boards have been scattered. And we see him here, we see him there, we see him there, because for centuries in our Western world, Christianity was the dominant religion It was how people thought. You know, the Bible was just the air we breathed. And we have, like, dust particles left over from those centuries in the West. And what's left is, like, these boards of belief that kind of make somewhat sense with our faith, but it's absence of belief in God or just, like, floating around out there. Okay? And Paul kind of—and this is where we garner, you know, instruction from him— Paul uses a similar approach when he starts grabbing when he wants to share the gospel— He grabs these random boards that he finds in the Athenians, and he says, look, you know, I can affirm this is true. This part of what you believe is true. This part of what you believe is true. This is true, too. But you know what? I'm going to give it a better story. I'm going to give it a better framework that actually makes coherent sense of the things that you're longing for of the things that excite you or the things that you believe in. I'm going to tell you actually how, you know, how to construct it all and to understand this world. And this is Paul's mission here with the Athenians. So in this process, I think we're going to be challenged. Challenged on how we view the world. right? Challenged on how can we be as missionaries, um, informed missionaries to thoughtfully, with grace and truth, Share the gospel of Jesus. Enough of an introduction. Chapter 17, verses 16. We're going to dive in right here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city that was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, oh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. All right, we'll pause there. Let me just pray for a time in the word. Um, Lord, your word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that it would be your words that are heard this morning. And not my own, Holy Spirit, would you open up our hearts to receive what you have to us, uh, for us this morning, Lord? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you unclog anything that's in our ears, any distractions or uh, busy thinking that may keep us from hearing from you today? So, Lord, settle our hearts as we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Paul is on a second missionary journey. And he walks into the epicenter of, you know, like intellectual world of the Roman Empire. As you saw last week, Silas and Timothy were still in Berea while Paul had to be sent off via ship out of the city for his own safety. They took him as far as Athens and he sent word back to Silas and Timothy to get there with him as soon as they possibly could. But Paul wasn't going to twiddle his thumbs as he was waiting in Athens. He went straight to his missionary work is it being walking around maybe think of like a tourist um, you know walking around Athens and Athens was still inhabited in these days it was still carrying some of its legacy in the ancient world and and he saw statues everywhere right of the of the of the infamous you know greek gods of the pantheon zeus and hermes and etc and and so forth the greeks had 12 of these major gods that they believed lived on mount olympus and there was You know, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Athens, Athena, right? The city of wisdom, it was known as. And there was a multitude of lesser deities everywhere. And Rome, at this point, controlled the world. So some of Rome's belief was kind of etched in there. It was kind of a hodgepodge in some ways as well. We know Olympus is empty. We've climbed that mountain. There was no gods, right? We've already learned this, but these statues are mere idols. And Paul saw them, and his spirit was provoked. Like, he actually got, he got angry, he got incensed when he saw these idols. And so what did he first do? His custom, go to the synagogue, his fellow Jews, right, and begin immediately preaching Jesus and the resurrection to them. But then he goes outside into the marketplace in the center of Athens. So when you think of a marketplace, I'm trying to set up the story for you here, think of you know, um, Central Park or, you know, uh, just a, 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 a middle kind of place where there was, you know, um, uh, vendors selling things, kids would have been playing around, but there was something unique called the Areopagus that was a huge, massive rock. It's still there. You can find pictures online. You can still visit it to this day. This huge, massive rock that was kind of right there, and it sor- served as sort of a judicial center to the city where people would stand and the uh, tribunal at Areopagus would go and actually, you know, give, uh, uh, administer justice in front of this rock. Um, people would be forced to give answers for the accusations given against them. And there's a lot of hints that, uh, you know, there's a famous story of, you know, Socrates, if you read it, you know, he was brought before a tribunal at Athens and it was, he was accused of preaching foreign divinities and he was killed for it. And so some people think that What happened here is when Paul was preaching foreign divinities, as we're going to see, maybe there was a little threat on his life. Like saying, are you you here to disrupt what we believe, you foreigner from, you know, this has happened before and, you know, we weren't cool with it then. Like, are, are you here to disrupt the things that we believe he interacted with two groups. We won't get into his massive details here. Just trying to draw the, the, the story here. The Epicureans and the Stoics. These are old school, you know, philosophical, you know, categories of thoughts. Um, we can summarize the Epicureans' view something like this. Nothing to fear in God. Nothing to feel in death. Good pleasure can be attained and evil, evil can be endured. And the Stoics, they were pantheists, meaning, you know, gods could be found in or within or kind of part of all of creation. They also believed in the the unity of humanity and virtue, a world kind of state focus and self sufficiency and self discipline. And these are the schools of thought that Paul started interacting with in the marketplace. And they said, you know what? We think you're a babbler. It's kind of a funny word. The word means uh, scavenger of ideas, which today we're all guilty if you, you know, use the internet of being a scavenger of ideas. It's like if you try to ask me questions about science or mathematics, excuse me, I'll tell you something that I think it sounds smart. It came from probably a Carl Sagan video that I watched on YouTube that was like five minutes long or like a Neil deGrasse Tyson thing. I know nothing about science. But, you know, I can spit out, like, words that sound smart, but if you press me, I have no idea. And this is, like, the kind of thing that they were accusing Paul of, you know, scouring YouTube for his beliefs, but in reality, he's a fraud. He doesn't know anything. He's been watching too many YouTube clips, you know, that kind of thing. This is what they were accusing Paul of being. His methods were sloppy, in other words. His knowledge was cheap. He doesn't really know anything. He's just pretending to know. And so the story continues on. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and they said, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And again, this is like where court was held sometimes, so this wasn't like a cozy place for Paul. If you're Paul, you should be a little nervous right now, right? A little, little tense. Uh, uh, you know, they, they grabbed and kind of threw him there. It was like, tell us more here as we stare at you in front of the place where we accuse people of crimes. Like, oh, okay. They say in verse twenty, "For you bring some strange things to our ears; we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean." But even, however, you know there was still a legitimate, curious, uh, you know, curiosity within this crowd about what Paul was saying. Maybe, perhaps, they thought he has something to share. You know, maybe what he's saying is legit. Maybe we should really hear what he has to say. Um, Luke then says in verse twenty-one: "Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there." would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is actually a joke in the Bible. The Bible's funny sometimes. And they, they accuse Paul of this like babbler and, Paul, and Luke actually says, they're the babblers. It was, it was like a little jab, you know, so we said, good job, Luke. He's, he got some wit, you know. Luke got jokes. All right, we're going on verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Stray board of belief, he, he sees one, and he says, I'm religious too. I see you're religious. You see what Paul's doing here? Just pay attention here. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Number two, board of stray belief. He grabs onto it. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. As Paul was walking around, he sees all these false gods and idols everywhere. He starts gathering those boards, and he wants to build them a new structure out of the things that they already believe, and bring clarity to it, and bring revelation to it, right? And so, um, just a a bit of a pastoral note, in our day and age, right, as as we live in a, a time of rage, did Paul stand up there and say, you all are idiots, you, you're just stupid. You know, did you know how dumb you sound by worshiping these false gods? You know, you're, Is that how Paul did this? No. Something that always challenges me about Jesus is in chapter 1 of John. It says he was full of grace and truth. It's amazing to think about that. Grace and And truth. It's like, how do you be truthful in a gracious way and be gracious in a truthful? You know, we we tend to want to overemphasize one or the other. We're going to see Paul masterfully walking in the ways of Christ and being gracious as he is affirming things that they believe. But as you see, he's going to flip it all upside down and confront them and even call them to repentance. There's something to learn here, Christians, about our witness as we interact with those around us, We have to realize that how we talk about Jesus and how we interact with our neighbors is not just empty words, our actions and the tone and the way we do it. We are representing Jesus Christ himself. We must be careful and thoughtful in how we represent that should might make a sweat. Like I get goosebumps thinking about this. The God of the universe became incarnate, he rose from the dead, sent his spirit, and now as Christians, little Christ's, we're representing him to this world. That is a heavy responsibility. Take that. Feel that weight as you interact with your neighbors and as you give opportunities, have opportunities to be a witness to the gospel. Grace and truth. Pray to God for help by the Spirit for that balance in your life. I pray that prayer all the time. I honestly do. So he continues on to verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything without going to exasperating details you know scholars have done all the work of just studying the the people he was talking to the things they believed and what Paul was saying there's nothing explicitly you know Christian only here in what Paul has said so far because his audience would have been like yeah we, we generally agree with that. We have a God who, you know, is Lord of heaven and earth, and we have, you know, yes, they gave life and breath to everything, and, you know, scholars have done the work, and Paul is not sp- uh, speaking anything new. He's still grabbing these stray boards of belief, right, that, you know, he, he wants to put these things together and start building a coherent structure, but for them, they are just kind of they've latched on to random things, and there's no coherence in their worldview. But Paul is graciously affirming; he's still grabbing these boards for them. Um, uh, there's the, the, the uh, general truth that we've seen in this little these few verses in verse 24 and 25. He's moving from big, like mega, the meta, and he's getting smaller as we'll see. He keep he goes from the biggest possible to, as we'll see, the smallest. Um, there's a God who made the world and everything in it. This God is Lord of heaven and earth. He's bigger than what mere temples could hold. Also, as a nod toward the Stoics, he says, God is also self sufficient. He doesn't need us. He's provided life to all of mankind. He gave them breath, He gave them everything. So far, the crowd is saying, Yeah, we don't, this this guy's pretty cool. Like, he, you know, maybe he fits here. Good stuff. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. I love how he said that, feel their way towards him and find him. God has allotted everyone to live where they live. He's determined where everyone lives, the boundaries of their dwelling place for a purpose, And pay attention, the reason why his sovereignty is exercised over humankind is that they should seek him and feel their way towards him. What Paul is telling them, he's saying, guys, I know you're very religious. You're worshiping all these gods. There's an unknown God over here. I get it. You are you're, you're trying to feel out and understand who God is. Like you're trying to make sense of this world. And I know you are because the reason why God has you where he has you is in order that you may reach out to him and find him. Your heart is, is longing for answers. Your heart is longing for meaning and for correct belief. And he's affirming these things. These These are true of every civilization on earth, of every people on earth, from the pyramids to the mosques, from everything in between. Everyone has been, and even today, as we'll see in a few minutes, they are trying to feel their way towards meaning or towards a God or gods or some kind of ultimate truth. And Paul says that even where you live is due to God ordaining it. That's how involved he is in your life. His fingerprints are all over your life. Even if you're in this room right now, you don't feel like that's the case, he is right with you. You need to know that. So today, in what I'm calling these stray boards of belief and longing, we find ourselves I want to jump ahead and try to talk about modern times, and uh, these are just very unique times that, you know, we're all part of trying to understand, because it's changing and evolving at the speed of light. If you want to talk about, you know, the religious nature of today, we talked about we're in a post-Christian world. There's, uh, you know, lingering things of Christianity kind of floating around, but Christianity is largely removed out from beneath them. Um, uh, uh, We live in a, uh, one author called it, it's like another great awakening happened. There's a hyper-moral, it's becoming nearly religious sensitivity in our culture. And these are in efforts that as Christians we can, you know, generally say, this is good. People are highly concerned about justice, about righteousness, about what it means to do right and to treat others right and to not discriminate. All these things that generally speaking as Christians to say, yeah, these are, these are important conversations, right? Any such desire for righteousness and justice is in reality it's a longing for an orderly life. Where all people are treated justly and fairly. This belief that there just might be some sort of value systems out there, that if we can just somehow attach ourselves to something outside of ourselves, that maybe this world will start to make sense. And maybe our interactions with one another will be more peaceful and wholesome and we'll find flourishing, but we're looking outside of ourselves to find this. For example, this is an interesting thing. Uh, Maybe you've seen some of these flags in Jersey. They're all over the place in Delaware. Um, They're on the people's front porch, and it says this. In this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights and human rights. No human is, no, women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. There's variations to this. Maybe you've seen this. It's usually colored in rainbow lettering. These are modern-day values that, as Christians, much of it we can say, like, yeah, like, there's, okay, okay. You know, not all of it. Kindness is everything is a little bit of a stretch. But in general, you know, these aren't, uh, you know, on the surface at least, radically offensive kind of principles. We can kind of say, yeah, yeah. But if you pay attention to how they're phrased in this house, we believe, it should remind, this is a creedal statement. This is a statement of belief, just like we have our Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. They're stealing things from Christianity and coming up with a new statement of kind of belief. This is happening, we should be aware of these things happening around us right now. Like Paul's day, we are living in hyper-spiritual times. Our culture is longing for some sort of ethical order to come up with and on their own belief statements and values. And like we said, many of these things we can you know kind of agree with, but, but, but many become distorted. Uh, left up for total reinterpretation because there's no foundation of like objective value beneath them or just kind of floating around out there right and if and these values you know they've been ripped from their foundation now we can start calling them stray boards of belief in many respects when you see such a sign posted in someone's front yard and you had the chance to speak with them start asking the why question for some of those things listed Why do you you have this out there? Why? And if you're not a jerk about it, but you're kind, you start pressing, you know, why is kindness everything? And you keep pressing. You will realize that most of these values, what Charles Taylor called, they're they're floating values. There's no real reason why other than people, you know, uh, uh, it's because they, they believe it to be true. Right, they they believe like I, I I believe this is to be good. You know, themselves becomes the only authority that gives you know meaning to these statements. C.S. Lewis had a very excellent. You know, this is decades ago in an essay, the abolition of man. He saw these things coming. I'm sharing these things by the way because this is a wonderful and amazing bridge to share. I mean, we live in such a unique time that there's there's more opportunity in front of us to share and to be the good news of Jesus than we've seen in a long time. And I'm very excited about being alive in 2021 and to do ministry in 2021 because the things I'm talking about are amazing bridges to the gospel, as we're going to see. And so that's what this story's about in that 17. This is what C.S. Lewis said, okay, um, in his in his essay, The Abolition of Man. He says, um, uh, he talks about natural law or, you know, traditional morality, that, you know, the idea that there's a natural way and order of life out there. He says, this natural law is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the, the sole source of all value judgments. And he's speaking as a Christian here. You know, There's one God and all these values that are kind of floating around. Well, there's only really one source of those, and it's God. Um, if, if it is rejected, that source, all value becomes rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute That value and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There never has been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What an interesting thought, right? He says, there'll never be a new value system. We're just rehashing old ideas over and over again. That's all he's saying. What purports to be new systems or ideologies usually consists of fragments from the real thing itself, arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole and then swollen to madness in their isolation. Yet it still owes that original source, God and natural law. It still owes that, you know, of its own existence. It's very interesting how he says that. And this is the world we live in, guys. As we witness our fellow Americans long for God and, and ethical order and justice and so forth, their values and all the offspring from them, they, are, they think it may be a new ideology, but it's just fragments from the real thing that as Christians we say, what a cool opportunity to start you know, witnessing and putting these things in order for our world, who is longing for order. Paul recognized these things among his audience I think we can recognize these things among our uh, day and age, and I want to go um, uh, back to this idea of you know feeling their way towards God, because this is where it gets really compassionate to overflow here, like people, they're longing for these things. Like they're longing for meaning. And if, if, you, if you know Jesus this morning, you know how much he means to you and his salvation, what it's provided. And just, I, I can't fathom any kind of understanding or definition of my own existence or my own family's existence and how I parent and how I am a husband to my wife and how I pastor and live and just everything is filtered through that. He's so precious to me, and we look around and we see people trying to feel their way towards meaning, it should draw compassion out of us. It should draw love out of us to go and want to just their feet and say, Do, do, do you know the the, the do you know the Jesus that I know? Because I, I I think He can help make sense of what you're looking for. It should usher not rage out of us, but compassion. Because this is the conversation of our day today. He picks up, let's pick back up in the in uh, middle of verse 27. Paul says this. Yet God, he is not actually far from each one of us. In verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. These are the final two boards of stray belief as we're calling them. right? Uh, some people debate some of the sources. But those were quotes from the New York Times bestsellers of Paul's day right? These are the quotes that everybody would have known, everybody would have agreed with, and it was really famous, and everybody had to kind of memorize. There's no printing press, right? These are just, you know, phrases that were tossed around. Everybody knew them, and Paul, he latches on to those things and says, I agree with those things too. Your own poets actually agree with what I'm about to say, right? So he's, again, he's affirming things amongst the culture around him. And so then he launches into the explicitly Christian part of his message. And we're going to bring it home here in a few minutes. But here's the 10 things that Paul has affirmed. Just a summary before we dive into the resurrection. Paul started off, he said, you guys are very religious. You guys worship an unknown God. These are these stray boards, and he's gathering them up. He's about to start putting them together to build his house. This unknown God is a God who made the world and everything in it. He doesn't live in temples. He's much bigger than that. Nor does this God need anything from us. He gave us life and breath. He's made every nation and allotted their place in history, all that they should seek. God, he is not far from us. We live and have our being and our life in him, and we are even his children. Big a small. God created the world but now we're his children and Paul now he finds a springboard he gathered up all of his boards he's going to start framing his new house to make coherent sense of it all beginning at verse 29 being then God's offspring being his children we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man and this is when Paul gets a little confrontational here This is when his audience would have been like, ugh, now I don't like this part, right? Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn, implication to his audience, from their idolatry, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Remember, where is he standing? Where court usually happens, in front of the Areopagus? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. There's, there's another judge in town, right? Uh, He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The boldness comes in Paul's words where he's being very truthful and confrontational because some ancient Greek writings had imagined that all the court that happens in front of the Areopagus was, you know, only, the only people who had authority behind the tribunal were the Greek gods. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Those Greek gods are actually nothing. They're actually nothing at all. Because a man came back from the dead... And by that authority that a man rose himself from the dead, we know that all the authority of judgment lies in him. Therefore, my Greek friends here, you must repent of your idolatry and turn and believe on Jesus Christ. This is what he was saying. So Paul takes this the Greek story and he flips upside down, he redirects it to Jesus. He gets those stray boards of belief and gathers them up, up and points them to their true house, which is Jesus. And as we said, he's doing it graciously but also truthfully. He confronted the Athenians. With the resurrection event. And remember, the resurrection is real, like it actually happened. The resurrection is not made up, it is not some mythical story. This is a true event, a real event that Paul, as you read earlier, he actually met the risen Lord. That event still confronts our world to this day. Ultimately, what Paul is doing here is like a battle of the Greek gods versus Jesus. Right? The showdown is happening in front of the Areopagus. Paul is saying, Are your so called gods really anything at all? Are they the real deal? Because my God came out of a grave. What about yours? Right? We know in verse 18 earlier, he was explicitly preaching Jesus and the resurrection jesus was raised no human being has a power to be to raise himself from the dead and paul is begging that they be confronted with this reality and he says this man is the one in whom the world will be judged there is a fixed day of judgment coming and it's coming not through apollo or zeus or the greek gods rather it's coming through christ through jesus and the calls that we turn and repent now how do these how do they respond to this message in verse 32 When they heard this of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "Eh, maybe we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined them and believed, among them who were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So how do we close? How do we bring home this sermon? What is in this sermon for us today? I want to ask a series of questions as we seek to be on the back end with this. Yes, like Paul, with grace and truth, he recognized that um, there's there's the the method that Paul takes here to share the gospel. There's much to learn from that. We've walked through that, but I'm going to go back to the beginning when I said this is really also a sermon um, that is confronting us today, because can we pretend that even in our own hearts, there's not a pantheon of false idols that we cling to, that we know we shouldn't, that we know they don't deliver anything, but yet day after day, week after week... We fight the inner battles, the inner spiritual battles, to want to bow down to all of these things that we know simply cannot save us. That in our longings to know God more and find meaning in life, even though we know the truth, that we often find ourselves grasping for meaning from some things that simply cannot deliver. This is why Calvin once said that our heart is like an idol factory. You get rid of one, it just produces another immediately after, and we hear that, we say yes and amen, I know that that battle is real. Are you here this morning leaning on something or someone to deliver ultimate meaning in your life that is not God? Are you expecting God-sized things from your marriage or from your children or from your job or your career or your finances or whatever it might be? Have you this morning gotten caught up in the cultural moment, especially in the political hot mess that our nation has been in for some time now, and latched onto some political identity or party to try to make sense of this world, I know this may be controversial on daylight day like July Fourth, which I'm thankful to be here. But the original source of holidays, holy days—I don't know if you knew that or not. These are, you know, a, a new modern form of ancient, you know, church calendar days. that used to be for worship. For you know, leaning into God on days of rest, but now we've replaced all of that with things like our you know our military, and our national um, story has become what we find rest in on our holidays or our national holy days, as we will. Has your identity as an American consumed you and become your primary identity before that of Christ? This is an important question for the evangelical church. As we close, I want to remind you of the way, of the truth, and of the life. The one Jesus Christ, who was resurrected from the dead, the one who took on our sin on his own shoulders and died and was raised. His story is the true story. It makes sense of all other stories. When Thomas, the night before Jesus was arrested, was told by our Lord that Jesus was going to prepare a place for him that he was leaving soon. Um, Thomas said, Lord, where? Like, where are you going? Tell me the way. I want to go. Tell me the way. This is his response. You know these words if you've been in church for any amount of time and listen to them. Jesus said to him, I am the way. Thomas, I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also from now on, you do know him and have seen him. As we wisely bring the gospel to our entering cultural moment, interesting cultural moment in conversation today, keep watch over your own heart. Is Jesus king of your heart? Is He your Lord? Is the gospel story, His life and death and resurrection, your true and first story that you are in that you identify with before all others. The story of Jesus is, in many ways, your story. The Holy Spirit wants to shape you and conform you to it. And I want to end on that reminder, brothers and sisters, as you read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, of the gospel. For that is who you are. That is the answer to our culture. And I pray this morning that we can not only be encouraged and better equipped to live as missionaries, but as we enter into communion, i want to call um, Pastor John up to come and lead us in communion if you're hearing these things, you're realizing there's things i got to turn from. Like I've allowed my heart to cling and be connected to other worldviews and this and other identity sources are just leaving me dry and not happy. And I'm just, I'm scraping for help here. And do you need to repent and turn this morning? Now's the time for communion as we approach the elements. As a are reminded that his grace is always sufficient and enough. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we we thank you for um, Paul and your servant Paul and his example, his highly informed and thought through manner in which he shared the gospel to um, the complex day and age that he lived in. And Lord, we know we live in just a complex, just as complex of a day that he did. And, Lord, yes, we want to be better missionaries. Yes, we want to be compassionate towards those who are trying to feel their way out towards God and and trying to create systems of value and meaning out there. And when we know that they're ultimately, um, when the foundation is removed, that they don't have anything to stand on. Lord, I pray that we can can seize this call for a moment to, to not just speak the gospel, but also to be the good news as the Spirit of God fills us to live these things out. But Lord, maybe not be entrapped by this world. As as, as Jesus says, the world will bring us many trouble, but take heart, he has overcome the world. And Lord, any sin that may be just dwelling in our hearts this morning, he has overcome. Lord, I pray that we can turn to you today in joy and repentance for those who need to this morning. We love you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. And thank you for your resurrection. It is the only hope that we have. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.